while I've been gone, we finished one series and we started another that we um, calling Plato Hearts. And we've uh, put these all in front of you as really sort of a, a metaphor and an invitation to, to sort of think about these things devotionally, especially maybe some of um, the, the kids who are with us uh, sometimes during the summer in a different way. And we're looking at the life of David to understand what it is, how it is that God shapes and treats and works with, even with those for whom it said, that person is a man or a woman after God's own heart. Because we read that about David, and maybe you even have said that about someone else. You're so impressed by um, their pursuit of Jesus and their spirituality. It's like, yeah, they really have a heart after God. And with that comes a lot, I think, of baggage of what feels like sort of maybe really successful spirituality. Where everything they do, God just blesses and it's kind of easy for them. That somehow they have this like Avenger-like force field that nothing ever touches them. Life is just all good and everything is um, as it should be. But as we look at David, the, really the only person in the Bible for whom it said that that person had a... a heart after God, we see something actually different. We see something different than that. And what we see actually um, is that God takes David's heart and he continues to mold it and shape it. And what we wanted to say as we do this very brief study on the life of David, probably actually too brief, that whatever it is that God is going, whatever it is we can do to Plato, God will also do to the human heart. In the same way that we can sort of take this and stretch it and compress it and poke it. I saw someone stabbing their pencil into it. I'm not sure that's a good idea. Um, you know, flatten it, pinch it, all these things. Metaphorically, friends, God does that same thing with us. And we might turn more and more into what he needs for us and for his kingdom out in the future. So we've called it Plato Hearts, to sort of imagine what it is that God might be wanting to do with us, and maybe even sort of do these things and imagine, in what way is God doing this with me in my life right now? How is it like this, or like this, or like this? I mean, just imagine what you had to do to Plato to do this to it. That's a lot of Plato. Or this. Imagine the shaping and molding and careful crafting. Or this. That's, that's a work of art. And you know they took that little Play-Doh thing and they squish it down and squeeze it through a strainer to do some of that. And uh, sometimes this last one is how I feel. Yeah, probably you do too. It doesn't quite live up to the art that you want it to, right? You're like, I'm working so hard on this, and you make this thing, and, and I have one of these actually at our house. I made this hippopotamus for my mom. I worked on it so hard, and I thought it was a spitting image of a hippopotamus. And I've looked at it. It does not look like a hippopotamus. It looks like that. God takes whatever it is, our starting material, and he'll shape us, mold us. Last week as we started this, Pastor Call talked about how, how the Lord's going to stretch us as we look at the life of King David. 
You look at this episode right at the very end of David's life, where, or towards the end of David's life, when it's, he desires to make a temple. He's, he's now been the king for a number of years. He's been victorious. Uh, tax revenue's coming in. Things seem settled along the land. And he wants to build a temple to honor the Lord. And the Lord says, no, that's, that's not for you to do. But I want you to know this one thing. That from your line, my kingdom will be established for all time. From you and from your kingdom, from your bloodline, will be the one from whom I will set up my eternal foundation of my kingdom. Talking about Jesus Christ. And what we said, or what we sought to, uh, what I, what we sought to say was, was one of the things that God does is God will stretch time in a way that we don't always get to know what, how God is shaping us and molding us for something we can't even see. We, we think sometimes minutely, or as we'll talk later, you know, in, in seconds, maybe days. But as Jesus and the Lord work on us and our hearts and minds, He, he works on us generationally. We don't always get to know. There have been times when I've wondered, when I think about my own, my own Christian story, my own uh, spirituality, my, um, my, my great-grandfather and his brother were, um, were missionaries in India. And sometimes I wonder if that story, how much it makes my own sort of heart sort of yearn and pound whenever I talk about it for too long. It makes me wonder if part of what God was doing and shaping them had to do with me and with us. Way back in 1904, as they're planting a church in Nagarkoil, India, did God have you and us in mind? I think He probably did, in ways we never could have written or anticipated. So then what is God doing with you and on, for the sake of His kingdom that you can't see or even imagine right now? God stretches out our time in ways. It's good for us to know that God is at work even when we can't see it. And today we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the David story in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, Let me say a word of prayer and we'll dive right in. Gracious, holy God, thank you for this astonishing, beautiful, faithful group of people. Thank you, Lord, for their warmth and their earnestness and their desire to follow you. We pray, Lord, as we come to this moment that um, these words would truly fire us up in our hearts. That our imaginations and what we see and what we think about would, would be altered, not because of me, but because of your word working through it. Would you help us, prepare us, shape our Plato hearts in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so um, quick context for you. Israelites have been in the homeland. They've been in Israel now for a couple generations and, and uh, several generations, in fact. And they say, we want a king like we see everyone else having around us, all the other nations. And Samuel, who's the spiritual leader at the time, and the Lord hear this, and Samuel says, no, you don't. You don't want a king. And they said, yes, we want a king. And the Lord says through Samuel, okay, I'm going to give you a king, but I want to warn you something. If I give you a king, 
you're going to have a king. And the first king is a man named Saul. And Saul is sometimes tenderhearted and humble and generous, but he's also like filled with anger and he's impulsive and he's a warrior and he's all these things and he's, um, he defeats the Philistines. And somewhere in there, he, it's a long story, we're not going to get to preach through that, he, he loses the Lord's anointing and favor. And the Lord says, the next king is going to be one who um, uh, is a man after my own heart. We're going to start over, and, and the next king will be one that um, it pursues me more than anything else. That happens in chapter 13, and there's several sort of uh, weeks, months, maybe even years of Saul continuing to be king. And then finally we get to this moment. Samuel and Saul have had a bit of a division over this, and um, anything Samuel now does is suspect in the eyes of the king, which explains maybe the opening to this passage. If you have a Bible in front of you, I encourage you to open it and follow along with your own eyes at um, 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But because Saul is so violent and there's this bit of division, he says, but Samuel then said, how can I go if Saul hears about it? Knowing there's another king coming, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So go with a spiritual reason and there maybe there's some secret business to invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? See, everyone knows about this deep division and there's worry. If they see Samuel, is, is, is Saul going to come in his anger later and judge them? In fact, what we'll see in a couple chapters later, if you read through 1 Samuel on your own, is actually he does um, destroy and kill and massacre um, places of worship, families, even towns. He has that within him. Do you, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands right here before the Lord. This is the one. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
Then Jesse called forth Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep, not even at the sacrifice. Samuel said, well, send for him. We will not sit down to the feast until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Let's talk just a little bit longer about what it is the Lord, um, how the Lord shapes and forms David in a way that, that actually doesn't even sort of necessarily show up on the surface. You have to do a little thinking and pondering over this moment. You see, we're all prone to doing what Samuel did. He's, he's there, he's ready to sort of anoint the next leader. And what does he see? He sees the oldest. And in that culture, the oldest was due the lion's share of the inheritance, was given the greatest responsibilities, was the one who um, would begin sort of doing like family like deals in the town square, was probably was the first one to be asked to be a warrior when they went to go fight the Philistines. He's big, he's fine-looking, he's probably ripped. He's strong. This is exactly the kind of person that Samuel's like, yeah, this, this is the kind of warrior, this is the kind of king that we need to face these Philistines. This, this guy's like Saul, but on steroids. And the Lord says, no, you have it wrong. And this echoes throughout time to this very moment. Because all of us still are prone to judging things that are, are focused on external outward appearance. What do the people, what, what does someone have? What have they done? What have they accomplished? What's on their resume? What have they acquired? The Lord says, Humanity, you, Samuel, you, you judge based on someone's appearance, just the things that are external, and we can find out about those things. But, but the Lord, I, he says, I judge based on the heart. I, I, I seek to base things on, that you, on what you can't understand. So it's not Eliab. It's not son number two or three or four. The last four, they don't even get names. I cannot imagine having eight sons. So Samuel's, he's frustrated and he feels like a failure. And 
And he's like, look, I consecrated your sons. Is there, is there another? Have you been hiding? Have you been keeping one? He's like, well, yeah, there's the runt. There's the one that sort of we keep out in the fields. There's the, there's the one that's kind of of no account. We didn't invite him to this because it doesn't really matter. He's out sort of tending to the sheep. And it might be helpful to know that that, that kind of work I've come to understand is, is both really honorable, but also it's the, it's the kind of work that like just didn't do a lot of damage to a family. You could, you could give the job of tending sheep to a distractible 12 or 13-year-old boy. And it'd be okay. It's going to work out okay. They, they can't, they could, you know, they can't do, they could do some damage, but not a lot. Sort of like, um, I read someone sort of comparing it to being a bag boy at a grocery store. You might drop a jar of pickles, but you're not going to burn the place down. And Jesse says, well, there's, there's that one. Samuel says, well, go get him. We're not going to sit down to this meal until I see him. So we have no idea how long that took. But finally, when David gets there, um, there's this moment where, you know, Samuel uses the same outward appearance. Hey, look, he seems like glowing with health. And he seems like he's got fine appearances. And God doesn't even comment. Like, you've missed it again. This is the one. It's not because of that. So he takes his horn of oil in front of all of his brothers and makes a choice that it seems happens over and over in the Old Testament. God never chooses the people that we think are the biggest or the best or the strongest. The runt becomes the giant. And he anoints him and the spirit descends on David and Samuel leaves. Well, how is it that David became this person that actually had the kind of heart that God wanted? How did that happen? He's just this little, tiny, kind of probably picked on, kicked out, frustrated with everybody. He's always frustrated with him. He's just this little runty guy. How did he do it? How can he be the one who God says, this is the one that has the heart. When we zero in on that question, there's so many things to point out in this little episode. When we, when we point out on that, focus in on that one little thing, it's, it's a couple things I want to point out to us. One, this is the first one. Are you ready? Curate your heart and not just your life. Curate your heart and not just your life. Do you, do you know this word curate as a, as a noun? It's like sort of a, the word for a religious leader. But as a verb, it means to sort of carefully collect and select and, and acquire and build some sort of a collection. And if you've ever looked up words on Google, sometimes it'll tell you like when they were popular and useful and when they weren't. Total word nerd moment. But if you look up a word, you can find out when it was popular and when it wasn't. And curate and curation have kind of come back into vogue in the last five to eight years. People curate Spotify playlists for their dinner parties. They, you know, they, they curate books. They 
um, curate and plan adventures. They do this sort of collecting of things. I do it. And it's easy, actually, in this day and age, to very find all sorts of content to actually curate your life in every single imaginable way. You can curate your life when it comes to sort of interior design and uh, what your yard looks like. You can curate ideas on um, how to raise your children, and you can curate ideas on how to be a better manager and how to um, improve your productivity and um, how to build um, better friendships and how to curate the right kind of business contact. You can curate your life until you fall over dead. And here's something I want you to know. We can actually improve our life, and that's, that's not a bad thing. Curate your life, but not only your life. Curate also your heart. When we pause for a moment, that's what happened with David. See, David was a shepherd, and here's what a shepherd did. They got up, they moved the sheep into like some sort of a gathering of people in front of a field, they sat or they leaned on their staff, and they just hung out. They didn't acquire, they didn't plan, they didn't build a resume, just curated his life and part of his heart. I don't want us to feel guilty about curating our life. My vacation, you could say I was curating a life, right? Curating experiences and possibilities and memories and opportunities. All these things. Those things are not bad. We get this uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 4. It says this. For physical training, the things that we can do, I'm going I'm to translate that for the sake of today a little bit beyond just working out. The things that we can do that we can see that are physical, that are fleshy, that are part of curating a life, all those things have some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Curate not just your life, but seek to curate your heart. Seek to build the thing that will last beyond the grave. Between services, I, I was talking to someone who said that they have lived in the same house for the last 39 years here, and they're getting ready to move. And I said, there's so much stuff we're embarrassed that we still have. Stuff that we at one point thought was important. Because what you have said about curating a heart and not just a life really rings true with us today. But we do it. I seek to acquire. I seek to be more productive. I seek to do all those things. And this word from Jesus is important to me in this moment. This is uh, from Mark, but you see something very similar in Matthew. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? yet forfeit their soul. Only you know about the kind of compromises you've made 
to acquire. Only you know the kinds of things you've done in your life and in your habits and with your money, with your experiences, where you have sought the world, you gained it. It's one of the richest communities in the world. But only you and the Lord can assess how much then you have let go of your soul. But if we want to have our heart shaped and molded and formed by the Lord, we need to curate our heart and not just our lives. There are any number of ways for us to do that. I'm going to give us just one today. Here it is. I'm going to use that word curate again because I'm kind of into it. Curate solitude. Curate solitude. See, what formed David is none of the things that we usually think of as vital or important for the development of a person. What did I say? He went out to a field, kept the sheep safe, and just hung out. It's hours upon hours of boredom and thinking punctuated by moments of panic. In a couple chapters, when he defeats Goliath, he says, look, I've been a shepherd And as a shepherd, sometimes I have to throw stones at bears and lions to keep the sheep safe. But mostly it's just boredom. Do you know what to do with boredom? Do you know how to curate solitude? In 2015, Microsoft did this study, and they found out, maybe you didn't know this, maybe you did, they found out that we have now come to a point in human history when we have a shorter attention span than a goldfish. A goldfish can focus on the same task for about nine seconds. Human beings are about down to seven. Did you know that this is about all about people who have smartphones? I'm not going to take a survey, but I'm going to guess it's about... 87.9% of you. Did you know that the average American with a smartphone touches their phone close to 80 times a day? About every 12 minutes on average. That same American with a smartphone, the average American, I'm, I know we're above average, so you don't know if that means less or more. The average American will touch, tap, swipe, press that phone over 3,000 times a day. Are we creating, even just on that one small metric, enough space for solitude? David had found a way to build a very different kind of a life. I've been reading this book while I've been on vacation. It's called Lead Yourself First. Uh, It's written by one of the, uh, I I picked this book up when we knew there were like four possible candidates uh, to fill the empty Supreme Court um, or the Supreme Court vacancy. And the author, Raymond Kethledge, was one of those judges that was being named. It's like, okay, I'm not going to read a bunch of legal briefs. That's kind of, I think, beyond my training. But I can can read a simple book to try to understand one of these uh, possible nominees, and I read this one. It's called Lead Yourself First. And really it is about exactly what I just talked about, that we are so intent on making sure that we have curated and gathered as much as we possibly can 
that we've left space, we've like taken all the space out to actually be able to understand and embrace what God has set in front of us. We don't know how to be alone. Just try it. You're going to go to the grocery store or somewhere this week. You're going to stand in a line. And it's going to take you some amount of time before you pick up your phone and look at it. I predict about seven seconds. But what if you didn't? What if you actually ended up spending and using that time sort of awkwardly making eye contact with the person in front of you? Acknowledging the people around you or maybe just quietly spending some time in introspection. See, what uh, Kethledge says in, in his book is there's all sorts of ways and people and historical examples of, of how people have chosen solitude as a way for their hearts to be shaped and molded. And certainly that's what we see in David's life when we think about the life of a shepherd. In the book, he talks about people who intentionally spend um, every morning just sitting in a chair, doing nothing. I try that in the summer as I pour a cup of coffee, go to the front deck, sit on the chair, going to spend some time in contemplation to get ready for the day. And inevitably, I pick up my phone to uh, read the headlines or check if that email got answered or whatever else. Do you know how long that takes me? About seven seconds. Because we just are doing this. He says other people will, um, as a way to cultivate solitude and this, awesome, this possibility to, uh, he doesn't say this, but I will say this from Scripture, to spend some time personally and intimately with the Lord. He says some people go running. Some people will spend some time and they'll journal through. Sometimes people will sort of focus on uh, the, uh, an important poem that has consistently been significant to them. But we're not going to be ready to actually have a cultivated and curated heart if we don't find some time to actually curate some solitude. It doesn't have to be a lot. What if you just sort of sat in your car for 90 seconds before you got out of it next time? What if you actually opened the car door, put your phone right there on the ground next to you, Close the door for those 90 seconds. So it actually lasts 90 seconds. What if you found a way to curate some time with the Lord? So here's my last little encouragement for you today. Be that guy. Be that guy. On our way home from our time in Spokane... Um, uh, there's a man and his family. I noticed this family because they have four kids. And when you have four kids, you have radar for other suckers. And um, we sort of watched, I kind of watched his family and noticed this family. And um, they got on the plane right next to us. He stood, I sat on the aisle and he was in the aisle right next to me. And as soon as we got sort of at cruising altitude, um, he uh, pulled out his Bible. Opened up his little tray, opened up his Bible, pulled out a little journal with a pen, 
And I watch this with fascination. Because I think, frankly, most of my peers and friends, we are afraid to be that guy. We're nervous to be that overt about our faith. But this man took the time that he had, the solitude that he could actually claim for himself, and right there on a plane, um, he read Scripture. I don't know how long it was, maybe five or ten minutes. And he pulled out his journal. His journal's already out, and, and I, I, maybe this was a little creepy, but I just watched him. I was so impressed and taken with this. He just spent some moments kind of just like free associating on, in his journal about what he had just read and what it might mean for his life. And then he wrote like prayer requests in big block letters and, and uh, he, he prayed for a, a, a girl's woman's name, I assume was probably one of his daughters. He prayed for a business deal. I'm like, I should not be looking over this guy's shoulder this way, but I can't help it. And the thing that was so beautiful about it is his pursuit of something more important than what some stranger across the aisle thought. He didn't care about me. He was curating some time in solitude to be with the Lord. Be that guy. Be the one for whom spending some time with the Lord is more important than anything else you might be trying to think about or acquire in that moment. So uh, he, was, he was done, he folded his stuff up, he put it all away, I looked at him, he looked at me, and he just went. <laughs> Are you afraid to be that guy? Are you a little nervous to be the one who at a coffee shop might, might, at a coffee shop might sort of pull out their Bible? Are you the one that's a little nervous to, to have anything connected to your spirituality sort of in your office place? In case someone sees it? Are you afraid and nervous to, to create just a little bit of space for solitude, to be with the Lord on a regular basis? Because it's going to upset the rhythm and perspective of people around you. David wasn't afraid of that. In a couple chapters in, in Victory, he uh, he dances in the most sort of crazy, overt way down the center of the streets in praise of the Lord. And his, his wife actually says, stop it, you're embarrassing himself. He says, I will do even more undignified things than this to praise my God. Be that guy. Curate some solitude. Pursue the life of a shepherd probably without the sheep. Do you know what it is? I want you to, just as I end up here, and just before I pray for you, I'm going to give you a few moments of solitude and silence, even as you're with someone else, probably right sitting near you. I want you to think through what your day tomorrow is likely to look like. Where in that day can you purposefully and intentionally curate some solitude? Where can you, on purpose, be that guy? Girl.
Let's pray. Lord, these moments when we think and consider and silence, well, I've come to the conviction that that is your spirit speaking to us. And so, Lord, would you give this group of people the courage, the discipline, the readiness to curate some solitude tomorrow? Would you remind them to do it? Would you meet them in that place? Would you let them know how deeply it is that you love them and claim them as your own, that you have stretched them and have a plan for them beyond their generation, that you're forming them in the now? Bless them all, I pray, in the strong name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.